In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organically. Welcome back to Meditations and Molotovs on the Progressive Radio Network. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. And we speak to you this Monday, August 15th, with a heavy heart. We're going to jump right into it pretty soon, but I, I just want to provide a little intro here to what we're going to talk about. Lead poisoning, systemic racism the consequences of industrialization, the consequences of neoliberalism. And we see this taking place not only in East Chicago, Indiana, but we also see this playing out in horrific and devastating fashion in cities such as Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where tens of thousands of people have been moved from their homes due to catastrophic flooding, uh, flooding on a scale uh, which that community hasn't seen in maybe many decades, maybe ever. And of course, these occurrences are happening ever more frequently in the context of climate change. And also we see the, the limits of neoliberalism or the impacts of neoliberalism, I should say, and the limits of liberal activism in a place like Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Again, one of the most, if not the most segregated cities in the entire United States. So I think we're actually going to find a way to bring all of this together. But more specifically, today's program is about the situation in East Chicago. To join us here today, we have artist, activist, and public in intellectual, I would call him a public intellectual, public educator, Thomas Frank, who joins us on the phone. So thank you, Thomas, for coming on the program. I appreciate you once again joining us in un unfortunate circumstances, but we're going to stay with this story uh, for as long as it takes. So thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. It's, um, it's a terrible situation, but we have, I mean, this is a systemic problem, so there are many issues like this here. Well, let's jump right into it here. For folks who aren't aware, and we have about 57 minutes to do this, so we don't have to, you don't have to rush Long-winded answers are great. I'm not going to interrupt you too much or at all. Um, the first thing I would ask for you to do for listeners who might not be aware would be to sort of give people a history of where is East Chicago, the history, a little bit of a background about the city and where we find ourselves today. Okay, so East Chicago sits on the southern shores of Lake Michigan, uh, just out of Chicago in Indiana. And so it is what's uh, it's a part of what's called the uh, Calumet Industrial Corridor, and that's a corridor that is shared. It's a bi-state corridor with Illinois and Indiana. And so during the 19th century when they were industrializing, this, is really, this was the region that was the, you know, considered perhaps the most industrial region in the world at the time and for quite a long time. Um, it also happens to be uh, sitting on top of um, the fourth most biodiverse region in the continent uh, with the Indiana Dunes right here. And so that gives you a sense of the location. 
in the in sort of a history of how the city was incorporated and so on, this was a city founded on industry. Right. So uh, East Chicago, like our neighboring cities, Whiting or Gary, these were set up kind of, you know, I'm not say even kind of, but as industrial fiefdoms across the southern shores of Lake Michigan. Yeah, different industries set up shop and then had to attract settlements and develop settlements for their workforce. So Whiting was standard oil. Uh, East Chicago was inland steel in about 1893, the same year as the World's Fair. And Gary was in 1903, founded by uh, U.S. Steel. And so that's the, the context of the settlement patterns and the, some of the history. And so with these major industries locating here is you've just got a tremendous cluster of secondary industries and multiple industries uh, that kind of co, uh, cohabitated in this kind of ecosystem, industrial ecosystem. A lot of the steel mills you mentioned are now gone. I mean, in many ways, Today, this region is, is sort of, it, it, while it, it remains industrialized, it is very de-industrialized compared to, say, four or five decades ago, let alone a century ago. Right. And so that, that's been the real pattern when we shifted, we changed, we made major changes about 40 years ago in where capital, capital was going. Uh, we saw a complete de-industrialization of the southeast side of Chicago. All the steel mills, all the heavy industries uh, evaporate or are relocated overseas. Uh, we also saw them fighting these last 40 years against, you know, those contaminated lands becoming landfills as a way to deal with it. On this side of the border, the Indiana side of the border, we've seen uh, uh, some deindustrialization, a lot of deindustrialization, uh, but the core industries like steel and oil, what we've seen there is a consolidation of steel, uh, automation of steel, and also um, the reindustrialization of oil here, just actually just very recently, just uh, two, three years ago, with BP re- are building a brand new refinery on the southern shores of Lake Michigan. Uh, so that's kind of the history here. Um, so in the last 40 years, basically, while capital was escaping and uh, moving overseas um, with labor costs here, and get, let me just give you a real simple uh, statistic. In my city of East Chicago in the 70s, we employed over 70,000 people in steel and steel-related jobs. It was very easy coming out of high school to just find a job and go from one mill to the next. Uh, today, however, we only have less, well, we have less than 2,500 jobs in steel and steel related industry. But production is way up and continues to go up. In fact, what people aren't quite aware of, I know they've been worried about uh, China dumping and stuff like that, steel in, this, in the United States. But still, this region is still uh, one of the most productive regions in the world for steel. Uh, but what we've seen with that, you know, mass, that migration out of capital, uh, and moving industries overseas where they can get cheaper labor, et cetera. What we've seen is uh, those same industries trying to mothball their problems here, mitigating against their liabilities. They know they've contaminated. They know they've left behind lots of brownfields and lots of problems. And so legally and various maneuvers over the four decades, they've been practicing uh, a lot of practice, you know, maneuverings to mitigate against the liabilities. And that's what we're, we're left with. Um, and that's what we're beginning to uncover. And so what is that you're saying there? They, 
are trying to mitigate these efforts. What, is, what does that look like on their end? In other words, what are they doing specifically now that they've known? And are we speaking, or are you speaking specifically about the steel industry, or are we also talking about other corporations and industries as well? I think it goes across the across the, the spectrum of industries that were here that located elsewhere. They didn't, you know, there's one way to, to um, make profit is to build things uh, and sell things and, there's, and to build them at a cheaper price. And there's another way of, of increasing your profit is if you're, especially if you're a legacy industry, is to bring down your costs. And for an industry that's moving out, they're leaving a lot of cost in the ground in terms of contamination and having to clean up. And so there have been lots of, you know, these corporations are very powerful. These corporations have, you know, we're really a corporate, corporate, uh, 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 they pretty much run our government. They, they, they hire, uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> they hire our, our, uh, our lawmakers and they supply them with the laws that they want them to pass. And so we're in this process where they've written the laws. Uh, and they're being managed by those laws, the same laws that they've written. And this is, when it comes to laws, and this is where it really gets crazy. Uh, according to the ABA, the American Board Association, there are approximately, in, of their membership, um, there are approximately 30,000 environmental attorneys in the U.S. that are employed full-time. Full and 20, 28,000 of them are employed by industries and corporations full-time. About 2,000 of them are employed by government agencies, that's federal, local, or state, uh, full-time. And about 600 are employed by nonprofits or communities. So you can see, um, and in, you know, in my community, we don't have an environmental attorney employed by any entity. And the closest one that is is you know, two counties away from here. Uh, and so we have a huge challenge in fighting uh, this legally. Uh, and, and Industries being able to just leave their garbage and their pollution in the ground and walk away. Um, they would love to have, you know, cities and states take that land by eminent domain and uh, alleviate them of their, their liabilities. They love to deal with other scenarios. Oh, wait, let me, really let me have... stop you right there real quick, Thomas. Yeah, so if go the ahead. State, if the state apparatus moves in, whether that be at the state level or the federal level, and they take that land, the then that... The corporation's totally off the hook. Exactly. And so they – let me give you an example. Industries love to convey that property and be you know, completely taken off as a prior responsible party. And eminent domain is one way in which they are alleviated of their responsibility. And sometimes we, we – we take, you know, state takes claim of, of a project and hands it to another private industry for big projects like the Olympics. Let's say the Atlantic Olympics in 76. We know that that was built on old steel mills property, uh, inland steel. And so industry is always trying to find those kinds of big projects to sell their, their or to uh, hand their property over for or things like that. But otherwise, unless there's a big capital incentive like a, an Olympics, there isn't much interest in, or any sus economic sustainable method to repurpose that land, especially not to put it into higher and better uses. So, because you have the massive cost of remediation um, to bring that up into other uses. And so that really limits 
these older industrial communities in what they can do. And so a lot of these lands remain fallow. Talk to us a little bit about the demographics in the city. Are we talking about what used to be a white working class area that is now a community of color? What do the demographics look like today and how have they shifted as these industries have shifted? Okay, so today we're we're almost a predominantly community of color, um, about 90%. And that's uh, about 45%, 40% African-American and about 60% uh, Latino. Uh, and the rest are ethnic whites uh, and various others. And so that's the situation today. And East Chicago in the 70s and 60s, uh, you probably saw much more uh, heterogeneous uh, community. We had about 60 ethnic groups, mostly mostly white, uh, still a predominantly white uh, community uh, at that time. Uh, and what we've seen, you know, with the um, uh, you know the uh, the move uh, you know, across the seas, uh, the globalization of industries, we saw uh, the whites, mostly whites, being able to move out of the region and find jobs elsewhere. And uh, groups like African-Americans and Latinos uh, mostly got locked in here if they were here. Uh, they found it very difficult to find jobs elsewhere or find a community that would be welcoming to them. So, so since this process of deindustrialization and neoliberalism, as we're talking about the last three to four decades, what, what has happened in East Chicago since then. So what industries have left? You mentioned the steel industry. I've also heard that Anaconda and DuPont operated in East Chicago. You can tell me if that's correct or not. But nonetheless, what industries have left? And then what, I mean, what kind of jobs are there today over the last 30 or 40 years with all these, what you had mentioned, essentially over 65,000 steel uh, industry jobs that are now gone? Right. All right, so when we're talking about what's brought this issue up right now, and that's the Calumet neighborhood, which is a super fun site. Um, in the Calumet neighborhood, there were five lead smeltering plants um, right there, three of them within it and two of them on its borders, the southern and northern borders. Also on its southern borders was uh, DuPont for many years, and prior to DuPont, it was Griselli, and Griselli kind of was, uh, located there in 1889. It then became, I don't know the dates, but DuPont in the, in the early part of this century. And then uh, just recently it was uh, brought out by Grace Davidson. Uh, so that's always been a chemical uh, plant and still operating as a chemical plant there. Uh, what we've seen in sort of the uh, deindustrialized phase, I mean, we steel is still strong here and they still own uh, much of the land here. Uh, 80% of East Chicago is zoned heavy industry. Um, our Sir Middle has consolidated a lot of the steel assets here uh, under them. Uh, and then we had BP move into the, into the uh, city uh, two years ago with the tar sands refinery. Um, and so those are the main players today, steel. But also over the years, there have been, uh, you know, energy to waste or waste to energy projects, industrial waste uh, to create industrial energy. Um, that have located here, and those have been pretty dirty little projects um, that we have to that are continuing to operate um, here. Um, so that's uh, right can now. You, to, 
Let me let me just one one other thing. Right now, the biggest employer of East Chicagoans is actually a, a casino. So when we're looking at where people are being employed, there it's the casino that's employing East Chicagoans. Uh, most of these industries, like BP or Arsenal, uh, require a lot of education, and uh, they become upper or middle class uh, wages they get. And of course, a lot of those individuals don't live in East Chicago. Virtually everyone I know who has worked or works at the BP facility definitely doesn't live in East Chicago. Um, what I, that was part of what I wanted. I didn't. I wasn't going to interrupt you, but I did want you to talk to folks about the BP facility because you had mentioned that that's connected to the tar sands projects and so forth. For those who maybe haven't heard the last time I had you on the program and they're not aware of what that project is, can you talk just a little bit about that and when that project came to Whiting? I'm sorry, right. to, to the Whiting, East Chicago area. Right. So that's a good point right there is that the, um, it's known as the Whiting Refinery. It was founded in as uh, uh, Standard Oil in Whiting, Indiana. Um, oil has ha- had a struggle. We've been looking to move to alternative energies. Even BP in the year 2000 kind of tried to rebrand themselves as Beyond Petroleum. Um, but what ended up happening is they ended up investing in tar sands and moving towards uh, getting and refining uh, oil from northern Alberta, which is literally like tar sands. It's uh, it's really quite an important project. We, people may not realize it, but we, we shifted our energy resources or uh, imports from Saudi Arabia at that time, early 2000, to northern Alberta. So we get most of our imports from there. And this is literally uh, the largest engineering project on the planet. Um, and what they're doing is they're literally, like mountaintop removal, tearing out the boreal forest to get to the peat that's soaked, or under the peat, which is soaked with oil, the sands, and they have to boil that out, and then they pipe that down there. They slurry it with a uh, what they call the condensate, uh, a lighter, sweeter crude that they get from the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota, and they pipe it down here to refineries, 25 refineries in the Midwest, like BP. Uh, BP happens to be the largest tar sands refinery, and these are literally the, lar- the dirtiest projects on the planet in terms of energy, uh, energy use and energy out, and also the uh, carbon dioxide that they, they release. And kind of give you an understanding of how crazy we are with our energy policy. In the 1930s, when we were reliant mostly on Texas oil, uh, we would invest one barrel of oil and our energy to produce 100 barrels in return. So that's the amount of energy in to energy out. Today, with the tar sands, because it's, a, it's up in the, uh, um, the Arctic Circle, it's underneath a massive forest that has to be dug out. Uh, so it's, you know, to, to tear down the forest, it's the largest deforestation project on the planet, uh, larger than the Amazon. Um, but to dig that out, to boil the, uh, the oils out, to pipe it down here, to get it refined, at this point, what we're at is we're at one barrel investment, and we're only getting four or five barrels in return. So we're losing enormous efficiencies, energy efficiencies, by going to these more difficult reaches. The easy stuff is gone. So now they're having to go to more difficult reaches to supply our addiction to oil. Now, to make a comparison to, to alternative energies like solar, solar is about 15, 16, or one 
you know, say unit of energy to produce uh, 15 or 16 units back. Uh, wind is one unit of energy to produce uh, close to 25 units in return. So the energy equation for alternative energy is far greater than it is with, with uh, uh, fossil fuels at this point, especially uh, the tar sands. Yeah, this reminds me a little bit of the subsidizing of industrial agriculture and the, 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 the way the markets work in that industry is complete, complete craziness as well. Um, right. I don't want to jump too far off course. So bringing this back to East Chicago, when, did, when was the decision made to allow these tar sands to be refined and processed in East Chicago at the Whiting facility? When did this happen, Thomas? Because I, I, right, I actually have no idea. All right, so the uh, discussions uh, were in about 2006. And, uh, you know, ironically, or not so ironically, prior to making that decision, a BP making that commitment uh, to build this brand-new refinery, and in building it, they built it in East Chicago. So they actually moved it out of Whiting, or they moved the refinery part of their, their plant into East Chicago, and they moved it right across the street from our National Historic District. But the interesting thing about that process is, uh, two years or a year before they made the decision, the commitment to to um, build this here, um, they BP initiated a good government initiative uh, under Pete Fiskowski, and and through that they were able to uh, reorganize the regional economy to benefit their their new investment, and so by making recommendations and in, in, you know ener- government efficiencies and various things like that to ensure that they're at that time a 3.8 billion dollar investment uh, was going to have a return, and so that preceded their decision making process. And then they needed another incentive. So one of the poorest communities in the state. And who? I, let me let me just stop you real quick, Thomas. Yeah. I, just because I want you to people to get the information. Who is they yeah. when you're talking about back in '06? You you mentioned Pete Fiskowski. Who are the other players involved at that time, if you don't mind? Well, to get the big good government initiative uh, going, uh, it, a lot of that had to do with Region 1 initiatives. Uh, in northwest Indiana, there is a, uh, an attempt by corporations to create what they call a Unigov, uh, modeled after Merriam County in uh, Indiana, where Indianapolis is. Uh, so they wanted, they were, look, there's been a 30-year or 20-year process of trying to create this Unigov. Uh, throughout the region. And so the days are like the forum, uh, the Northwest Indiana Forum, which is kind of an industrial uh, lobbying organization. Uh, they are also housed in the same facility or same building as our regional planning authority. Um, this, this initiative was uh, championed by uh, the Quality of Life Council. It was also championed by uh, our r- local newspaper, The Times, uh, so these were kind of things we know. It was also in response to what we call, you know, public corruption. So, you know, the, where industry was funding and kind of owning what good government was, um, from that ownership of good government, they're able to point their fingers at uh, the political figures, in, in essence, those barriers to their investment as corrupt. And so that's one of the things about the definition. You know, our region is really known as being hugely having huge amounts of political corruption. Uh, but that's a part and party to this kind of good government initiative. And this is not unusual. I mean, this is what that industry does when they 
when they go into new territories anywhere in the third world, they do they initiate a good government initiative before they, they lay down their investment. Um, but also, just want to point out is also the last thing they really are not the last, but one of the next steps they needed is they needed uh, you know the city uh, to award them some money. So East Chicago awarded them a $165 million tax incentive to locate into East Chicago. And so you had, again, you had the, one of the poorest communities awarding one of the most profitable industries in human history an enormous amount of money. So. All right. So I, I, I'm sorry. I was just, I'm sitting here listening, taking notes, <laughs> and, and thinking about how absolutely fucking insane this is. Um, so this is 06. When did BP start? That, when did that project finish? Because I do want to move on more right. specifically yeah, we, to the to the. Go yeah, ahead. I think it's I think it's important to connect it to the big hegemons uh, in economic hegemons in our region and their stories. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, BP finished up. It was a seven-year uh, construction project that they finished up in uh, 2014. Uh, I think it was in February they went online, and so. They went online, and then a month after they went online, uh, they then issued uh, demolition notices to the, the neighborhood that they moved across to uh, from, and that was Marktown, and it's on the National Register of Historic Places. It's a, it's a really sweet-looking kind of English Tudor village. Uh, it's a workers' village, a low-income workers' village, and it's really quite uh, a shame you know, that this is occurring, but in the last two years, about 15% of Marktown has been demolished now. Um, and they're able to, by invading uh, the neighborhood, they're able to um, uh, lower their costs in terms of buying up properties. The people don't have much of an option. So those homes are going for about fourteen dollars to $25,000. And, of Jesus. course, these people don't really have many places else to go. What's, what's important about that framework and thinking about that, that's the – Marktown is one of three neighborhoods that have been cannibalized by industry in the last two decades. Uh, uh, in the mid-1990s, we had a company again, called Pollution Control Industries. And again, that was a waste-to-energy facility that moved into a neighborhood called the Brickyard. And a, a, a tremendous amount of cancer clusters within five years started developing. It became an urgent situation. And so what they did, instead of regulating or look, focusing on the polluter, they moved everybody, bought everybody out, moved them out, and then they tore down the neighborhood. So in 2000, or 1995, they tore down the brickyard. Two years ago, they began to tear down uh, Marktown, and now they're tearing down Calumet uh, because of the lead contamination that's in the, in the ground. So we, we have had a long legacy of industry cannibalizing on, on what's left of the, uh, the residential properties here. So what, so the two questions that come to my mind right away is number one, where have the people who have already been displaced gone? And number two, and then this is probably the larger question that leads us into a more specific discussion about what's happening now, but why today? How, how is it that after all of these decades, just now, people are finding out how contaminated the soil is? In the surrounding areas? God, that's a good question. Uh, so the irony of some of this thing, and the horror of it, is that some of the residents that were displaced from uh, the brickyard were relocated into the Calumet neighborhood. 
so that's a, that's a, a double uh, tragedy. Uh, Marktown, uh, the city oversupplied another housing project in their area, and so the, the city is trying to relocate those residents to that other housing project. Um, so that's where those are. Now, in the, wet, in the West Calumet neighborhood, the housing, it's called West Calumet uh, Complex, in that neighborhood, we don't know yet where they're going to go. There aren't enough, there isn't enough, housing stock in, in what's called North Harbor of East Chicago to, to capture them. So the onus is on the, on the housing authority to supply uh, uh, housing for people uh, and also, you know, re- all relocation costs and incidentals. Um, and we're still working out that and trying to make sure that, they're, that the, the residents are taken care of properly. Why is it taking four decades well, this, this is a hard thing. You've got to remember also when these housing projects were built, this housing project, West Calumet, was built in 1972 and planned in the late ni- uh, 1960s. Um, two things to take note about that is that was during the urban renewal uh, programming, and it was also when there was we were at the height of jobs in East Chicago, labor jobs, or in our region, you know, just in this region, there was just a lot of uh, jobs for unskilled labor uh, and you know, anybody just coming out of high school. So it's an irony, um, the confluence of issues, and to build this uh, housing uh, complex on a known lead refinery. Uh, it happened to be built at the same time the EPA was being formed, or had formed in 1972. Uh, but we are beginning to understand, you know, uh, the impacts of lead and stuff like that. Um, but what we why it took this long. Um, so people knew after that, in other words. So the first thing that comes to my mind is, okay, I'll, maybe we could cut slack for people who are in the late 60s, early 70s, saying, you know what, we had no clue how bad it was. We're just learning a lot about this and that, whatever. But, you know, now we're talking in the 80s or 90s, people understand there's city officials, there's people within the environmental regulatory agencies that probably have the information available to say, hey, wait a minute, now we have information that tells us a lot of the things that we've built in this area are actually probably pretty toxic and we should probably test these people. I mean, that's the first thing that comes to my mind as I was sitting in the meeting on Saturday uh, that we were both at, of course. Right, and that's exactly true. Now, the causes are a little bit different. The reason that housing project was probably located there was not because they knew about the contaminants, obviously, uh, um, but that it was clearly in their minds the most undesirable location, the place what they would consider, um, you know, the lowest income and and at that time probably uh, a population that was least able to defend themselves. Uh, uh, And that would be in the African-American community in, in the region. So that's probably many, you know, it's a, it's a racism was probably the driver of the location and the handling. And they built out an economy in which they were able to, you know, in the, the city and stuff with the housing to make money off of them as well. But why didn't it rise up? I mean, this is a really, really important issue. I mean, they, you know, by 19, 1985, 1987, they knew that there were real problems with lead. And they did some characterizations of the region and the land and stuff and found lots of hot, and since that period, they were finding hot spots. But they were processing, they were, they were moving forward in an ad hoc way. They, it wasn't systematic and uniform in terms of their characterization of the land. Now, what's really interesting is that in, by 1993, 
they decided with one of those lead refineries, they needed to put it in what's called a CAMU. A, um, it's a correction unit. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, um, it's like a landfill. They decided to cover it up with 40 feet of sand and put a liner around it because they, they recognized the danger it posed, not just to the, to the environment it was around, but to the, to the residents that were lived right there. At some point, uh, when they were building that, some somebody from the EPA had to turn and look over to Calumet, or West Calumet, which is right across the street, and say, "Uh-oh, you know, clearly, what logic went into putting 40 feet of soil over one lead refinery had to translate in an equal logic to another lead refinery, or to property that had two or three lead refineries that they build a housing project on." And I think since then, I think what we've been operating on is plausible deniability. They've been operating on the official record in a way that they can plausibly deny having to know. So not to really characterize the obvious, the most glaring problems. Right. And but then on Saturday, Thomas, I'm at a school that looks like a school straight out of Porter County, Chesterton or Valpo, Carrie Gosh Elementary School. I walk inside of this school. I was blown away. Now, this school was built after 2000. I mean, so who in the hell made the decision? Again, we could say, okay, well, in the 90s, people are plausibly denying this. By the early 2000s, I mean, almost anyone you talk to in the region is like, when when you're talking about that area, and I'm not talking about, you know, maybe reactionary types or so forth, but Mm -hmm. people who genuinely care honestly are wondering, why would you be building these kinds of facilities on this in these types of areas without properly checking it by the 2000s almost everyone knew sort of how toxic many of these areas in the region were or or am i incorrect in saying that you're you're completely correct and in fact um uh what that happens to be the second carry gosh um there was two schools that were built there and when they were built um it, there happened to be uh, an Indiana Department of Environmental Management uh, survey going on. They came on site not knowing about the construction and kind of flipped out and said, oh, my God, you don't know what you're, cons- you're building on. And uh, so they did some characterization. And, again, they did some, you know, very limited spots, and they cleaned up those spots. They didn't do a really uniform, and they found some really hot spots. And, in fact, to this day on that property – they know of some hot spots that they've never cleaned up. So knowing that while they were constructing it, that had occurred, it's really hard. And then what's, you know, just learning just, you know, just two days ago that my wife's aunt was, uh, work, had done work on that property during the excavation and had developed an enormous amount of cancers, brain cancers that ran through her body. And she passed away very, very quickly. Now, of course, I can't, go back and figure out the cause on that situation but these are the real concerns people there have have been talking about problems they've tested the kids the mayor announced when he announced the forced removal that they discovered in 2014 when they test the kids they hunt they all 100 percent tested high in lead not only that but 2050 the same thing happened now we're finally you know getting an, uh, an emergency response and in, in some of the cases, uh, there, we but got they've about known this since kids. 2014, that 100% of the children were testing hotter for lead. They knew this That's two years ago. Yes. Huh. And who is they Not again? Only, 
And that's the city uh, announced that. And the mayor announced that in in the in the meeting. Also, we 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 were getting reports recently of children that were tested in 2015 that they didn't get their uh, results for over 12 months. And so we have a little girl, several kids, but one little girl in particular. Now, uh, I don't know the the measurement entirely, but it's four parts of of something uh, that is a level that begins to get too high. Anything over a four gets too high. But a year ago, she tested at 33 parts. So, you know, uh, close to seven times greater uh, than the allowable limit. And she was allowed to stay there, you know, behaving and playing out in the dirt the way she would normally would for the last year before she got her test results. That's a real serious problem. Um, we don't understand a lot of the decision-making, why this wasn't triggered earlier, knowing – I mean, let me let's just – Well, we kind of – I mean, it, let, me, let me just say this. It's also notorious, and I know this from being someone who was born – on the southeast side of Chicago, that that area, and I'm sure people who are listening from the region and from Chicago are probably saying this too. I mean, I don't mean to say this like you're naive because I know you're not, but I'm no. saying some people will naively say, and I've heard this from some of the reporters from the Northwest Indiana Times, that wow, this is really you know complex, and we and there's a lot to layers to dig under. And while that may be true, let's also be honest and recognize that this is one of the most corrupt regions, next to one of, if not the most corrupt, major metropolitan area in the entire United States. I mean, right. I think we can I, safely I, say that. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that corruption really is because those political figures uh, manage the public perception of private interests, and that's really what this represents too. Um, and that's been what's really a problem. Now, I don't know if I've shared with you yet, but to let every, your audience understand is uh, EPA recognizes that anything above 400 parts per million would trigger a cleanup. That's where it becomes urgent. What they recorded and found in West Calumet was off the charts. They, it was at 91,000 parts per million in some of these, these spots. That's how hot this is. Um, I don't think they've seen that anywhere in the country. Um, and so that's the danger that these, these children, these families, and it's generations and long ago that people have been affected, not just the 1,200 people that live there now. And so that's, that's the real struggle with this situation. That's where it gets really complex. But I think the equation of why they were able to obfuscate has a lot to do with how corruption is, is employed here. Here, you know, you get trained up on plausible deniability. Every public official, as, you, as you're able to move up, manage resources on behalf of industry, you know, to keep costs down for them, um, you're able to move up in power. Uh, and I think that's what makes this hard. It's what's missing from the record that needs to be on the record that you need to find. It's not, you know, one of the, the instinct of everybody is to say, what did they know and when did they know it? And when you go to the record, those things are absent that would trigger something like that. And so we have to go and ask something a little bit. I mean, the obvious is, well, obviously, if you did a phase one, you would know that was a lead refinery. You know, that's an obvious thing. And why that didn't trigger things from that point is ridiculous. Now, what prompted the latest testing? Because that's another – that would be maybe the most common question I've received, especially from local people I've spoken to. They want to know why, why all of a sudden, why right now? All right. So I, 
so in 2009, they declared this a Superfund site. It was on the list, and that means it's on the national priority list. Now, in 1991, it was a candidate to be placed on the on the uh, uh, national uh, priority list, but failed, and that failed because it was IDEM's uh, Indiana Department of Environmental Management that needed to. Uh, it, it was based on some demographics of the region, but also um, some of the sampling, and so there wasn't enough evidence uh, to place it on that list. Now, in 2009 there was evidence. The difference between 2009 and 1991 was in 1991, the Superfund uh, program was flush with money. A little bit after that, it went bankrupt. So we're operating in a program that's been bankrupt. And so what it requires us now to do is go after responsible parties and sue them individually. And that's where we're at now. Um, once it was placed on the national priority list in 2009, that triggered uh, a larger... Um, set of uh, uh, studies that needed to be done. So they characterized their, this, this neighborhood is called Calumet neighborhood. It's broken down into three zones. And so they did a lot of characterization in, in zone two and zone three for a while. And then they started to focus on zone one. Now, you know, everybody knew that was on a lead refinery zone one. And so finally they went in and characterized. And this time they did not spot random characterization. They actually did somewhat of a formal uh, every yard. Uh, the difference between this and the other two zones is this is on public property. Uh, that's what made this really break really fast was once we got some results and immediately uh, we were able to get that information and escalate the issue quickly. When it's on private property, they were able, the EPA for confidential reasons uh, holds that information back, a lot of information back. So that's one of the things, and also because it's in a public housing issue. How, that's so you would have to file, file a Freedom of Information Act to get it if it would have been a private private property. Yeah, and stuff okay. like that. You're right. So okay. I don't even know if we can get it with confidentiality laws or stuff like that. But we do have certain. We do have a lot of information about a lot of the other uh, samples, but those were mostly random. No, I, there must be some logic to it, but it wasn't uniform, and it wasn't uh, comprehensive gridding. Uh, of, of the testing that still needs to be done in the other regions. And that's where we're at. What's really crazy is right now where they have done somewhat of a uniform characterization of one zone, the other zones are freaked out. That's triggered a forced evacuation in one zone. They're worried about themselves now. Should they move out? Uh, and rightfully also, so, yes. Right. Also what's difficult is, is that uh, – in 2014, there was a, uh, a consent decree between DuPont, ARCA, which is now BP, and the EPA for $26 million. But that only covers Zone 1 and Zone 3. It doesn't zone, cover Zone 2. So they're still in a situation there's no money to, 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 to clean up their neighborhood. So this, this gets very, very complicated. Okay, so where is the community today. Obviously, the, the areas that everyone knows, even though people assume the other areas are probably contaminated as well. Now, well, wait, let me back up and ask you this. Outside of those zones, are there other areas that you assume and other people assume are also toxic, but they're not zoned off as, as a, uh, a Superfund site? All right, yeah. So we know that there were lots of other industries that located here and had moved on. We know that uh, Union Tank 
and that's been a fallow uh, brownfield on the other side of the canal, just west of the canal from the Superfund site. Um, that's We're really concerned about that. Uh, there's concerns about new addition because that's been landlocked by uh, oil tank farms, Praxair, industrial gases, and the rail lines, and also a concrete company. Uh, and that's a small little neighborhood. We know that BP, uh, at the time it was Amico, spilled 16.8 million gallons of oil into onto our water table in the mid-1990s. They've never been fined, never been cited, and it's never been cleaned up. Um, I, you know, there's just so many other areas. We also know that most of East Chicago, although they, you know, this being used to be dune lands here, um, with the dunes were flattened and they filled in the dunes and swale with slag. So many of the neighborhoods here uh, were filled in with slag, and slag is known to have, uh, I can't remember the compounds that leach out of it, and some other issues. So there, there are vast, you know, there are num- so many issues, you, it's hard to, you know, to recount all of them. And my mom grew up in a neighborhood called Slag Valley. I'm sure yeah. you're familiar with it. Um, yeah. So where are we today? Today, people have to move out of the West Calumet housing complex. How? What I learned at the local meeting, which is also mind-blowing, is that under federal law, these residents have to continue paying their rent. Otherwise, they become ineligible for housing vouchers, if indeed that's the option that they go with. This is unreal. Yeah, so so the, the, the injustices don't stop. These are like... This is straight up a slap in the face, obviously, for people whose children are being contaminated, they're being contaminated, and they're living on, in a contaminated housing complex. Tell us what right. needs to happen today, what's happening today, and then that'll lead us into, say, maybe in the last 10 minutes, how people can get involved in what you think and what the re- local residents think needs to happen next. Right. All right. And so right now, many residents are in a panic. Um, that's been triggered by this, and they're wondering why FEMA's not here and why there isn't a you know mass removal of all the zones before they can you know say that it's safe. Uh, but with the housing uh, complex, yeah, you know, pay to get poison is a real problem, and we're trying to stop that. We're asked HUD if they can put a waiver, if they can put funds in that to keep the local housing authority afloat while these people are relocated. Uh, we're looking for a lot of things. Uh, channel for that. We're also, you know, we need to get the, everybody tested. Uh, we're looking to get a third party and we're putting in place uh, a process for them to get tested by an outside agency. One of the things that we're worried about is there's little capacity here to get all the residents tested. Also, there's little capacity for the local housing authority to be able to manage such a massive move, removal. Um, so we're looking to get help the city uh, and HUD to get to provide those resources as well. Um, so right now, the EPA is uh, hosting uh, a groups of families, if they've approved, in hotels while they go in and they clean out the inside of their homes. And now, the outsides are quite contaminated, so it's a, that's an issue. Uh, right now, we've closed down that school, and we're look, they're going to be busing, and that school started today, busing uh, the kids to another school in town. Um, that's, you know, there's, so with something like this, what we've had is a lot of cascading effects. So instead of just having this crisis and then finding all the solutions, what we're having is the crisis and our response to the crisis is creating more crisis. A good example is shutting down a school, 
robs the school city of about $6 million. Now they're having to get emergency funds to be able to adjust to that. So um, we're seeing, we're, we're running into uh, multiple unintended consequences uh, that is happening right now. Uh, and so I can't say that uh, this process is being managed on behalf of the community. It's, it's, they're struggling with their own bureaucracy. And that's, again, you know, after 40 years, they've been wrangling about who's responsible, what are the responsible parties, what's their political ramifications, what are the economic ramifications, how do we solve those? And it takes 30, 40 years to test the people or the ground in which they live. So they prioritize the people at the end. And so we're looking to try to break through that bureaucracy and just get these people into a safe situation. Let's work out the, the economics later. Uh, but we're having, we're struggling with that because of the legal powers that are, that are at play here. So. Well, and I would also argue that obviously the more attention this issue gets, the better. So the other question I've received from many people has been, why isn't this a national story right now? So two-part question. Number one, why do you think that is? Number two, how can people help make this story something that people are paying attention to? Because I think it's vitally important. As you've seen, I think, you know, in, in Flint, Michigan would be a great example where many communities – started to help, started to stand in solidarity. People were held accountable or are started to be held accountable. Of course, that's a process that could be probably another hour-long conversation. Nonetheless, what, what would be your answer to those two things? All right. So um, just to go back, I think the comparison to Flint is very apt. Um, uh, these are low-income communities of color that have been um, hit by legacy contaminations in history. But what the difference between Flint and here, obviously, is that it was uh, they are being poisoned by their drinking water. Here, it's they're being poisoned by the soil. But the other thing is, it took about 14 months in Flint to raise this up to national concern. That took a lot of work to get this to break nationally. Um, we're only three weeks, four weeks into this, uh, and I wouldn't say only. <laughs> We've gotten a lot of local press on a daily basis. Through, you know, there's at least six or seven broadcasts or, or local news articles a day here. Um, it did break nationally with Think Progress. Uh, they, the title of that piece, I think it had something, you know, East Chicago, Indiana. There's a city in, East, in Indiana named East Chicago, and it's the next Flint. Um, this is a big issue. It is as big as it, Flint. Uh, and it is beginning to break. Uh, and, it, and a lot of the reasons why we're not waiting and fighting to get attention over 14 months is because Flint had, had it already occurred. So oh. we're actually benefiting from Flint and the energies that went into bringing these kinds of concerns to the, to the public's attention. And how can people help who want to help now? That's both right. nationally and locally. Well, this is something that I think please raise it up to not just your local media, but anybody who has contacts with the national media. Uh, and during this election cycle, I think it's going to be important to try to, to infuse it into the debate because I think this is just a sample of the uh, Rust Belt problems uh, throughout the Midwest. And, you know, we're, there, we're fighting for jobs to get them back here, but we also have to fight for the, you know, to clean up the contamination, which in the cleanup can be enormous amount of jobs. Uh, to try to solve these problems. Um, so, but I think everybody kind of raise it up is, is, is really what's, hap what, what's needed. And to, 
we, we do have uh, a local organizer, Juan Fernandez, uh, who's re- uh, been collecting um, uh, donations of materials for people, helping people move. Uh, you can find that on Calumet, on, on a page called Calumet on Facebook. Um, we're beginning to try to get multimedia or media uh, attention, social media attention as well. Uh, but, yeah, please raise it up. And how about local folks? What do you what what next steps in terms of future organizing time? As you mentioned, the Rust Belt. I was just having a conversation with a person that I think you know as well, uh, my friend Roberto, who's an organizer in Chicago. And you know, we were we were talking about how this Rust Belt issue had come up for us over many years. Of, I've known him now almost ten years, doing active activist and organizing work with him, and. It's clear that a lot of these issues we see in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a lot of the same scenes, a lot of the same, the same context in which people in Ferguson are living in, in which people on the southwest side of Chicago, west side, south side, parts of northwest Indiana, parts of Cleveland that I've been to, parts of Cincinnati, Detroit, and so forth, Flint, Michigan, you mentioned as well. Talk a little bit more about that connection and what's happening in the Rust Belt because I think a lot of people are starting to see that these issues are connected. Of course, I didn't mention Baltimore, but we could go down the list. Right. So these, again, these, these are uh, abandoned communities by cap, capitalism abandonment and it's gone. And let me try to give you a very simple, you know, local example of how capital abandons things. Uh, in the 1950s, industry wanted to take over the entire lake, uh, southern lakeshore uh, in Indiana for, for steel. It took a congressman in, in Illinois, Congressman Douglas, to stop that and save the dunes, and now we have the Dunes National Park. Um, what's interesting about that scenario, we set up a nonprofit called the Save the Dunes, but what they, they're funded on is the industries that pollute in my community of color. So the, the Arsenal Middles, the Inland Steels, the U.S. Steels, the BPs fund the suburban edge conservation projects while they're polluting terribly communities of color. And that's, so we're faced with abandonment. We're faced, if we still have industry, we're faced with uh, lax environmental regulations that allow them to operate here. There's a reason why... Uh, um, BP and Arsenal Middle and U.S. Steel are still operating here because the environmental regime here is conducive to their interests. It's not operating in, uh, in Chicago anymore. It's not operating in some other places. Those places have been fighting abandonment of capital and abandonment of industry and fighting off landfills and waste projects. Um, so we share a lot of the situation. These are regions uh, where they've relocated a lot of communities. Uh, they don't have economic capital in their, in their homes. I mean, uh, in the 1990s when Clinton uh, changed some of the laws that allowed people to sell their homes and retire on that property, uh, that's on that money, um, tax-free. That's not something communities of color can do. A good, I mean, just give you a simple example. My parents bought a home in the suburbs of Illinois in the 1970s, early 1970s, the same time my wife's parents bought a home in East Chicago. My parents sold that home 10 years ago for over 400000 They bought it for 30000 sold it for over 400000 and have retired on it. My wife's parents, who bought their home in the early 70s for 30000 you know, their, their home is perhaps uh, you know, 70000 now. 
Um, and that's not a lot of the, the more difficult areas. So there's, right. there's been a way in which real estate has been devalued and devalued again. And this, these are all the, the cascading effects of the original you know, sin or something of racism and, and, and white flight and you know, pulling the market elsewhere. So we, we share a lot of the similar situations. And as you were talking about Chicago uh, exporting some of this, to Indiana, I don't think intentionally, of course, on behalf of the environmental organizers and activists who who did fight against uh, some of the more toxic projects and so forth that were proposed for parts of the city. But, you know, as my friend Roberto was saying yesterday, you know, this, and I would like to end on this, but, you know, this really reminds us how important it is to have a culture of organizing and resistance. And I say to my white friends in the region that they really have to educate themselves and expose themselves to different communities. And I'm talking here about people in Chesterton, Valparaiso, who live, you know, in these extremely privileged areas. And I say that because this is an area that I lived in after from middle school until the time when we moved from the southeast side to Chesterton till the time I graduated high school. And, you know, it's important, I think, for people in those areas, and that's not just in this region but around the country, to buy in to a broader and more progressive vision of what needs to happen in the future because if we don't have that buy-in and we have more segregation and more fragmentation and more inequality I think it's going to be only more and more difficult for us to properly solve or properly deal with these issues and so I just want to remind people of how important it is to organize thank you Thomas that's great thank you Organic. Organic.